the first two chapters of Habakkuk are basically an interview with God. And Habakkuk is speaking to the Lord. And you get, you get what God wants to say by listening to this back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And it's just two questions with two responses. And the first question that God is asked by Habakkuk is, why do I see in my nation and among my people, which was the people of Judah for Habakkuk, why do I see so much evil? Why, why is it that all I see is people who are walking in sin, people who are defrauding one another, lying to one another, cheating one another, the rich in the land defraud the poor and keep them down. There's violence. There's immorality. There's idolatry. Why do I see this? Why do you show this to me, Lord? And, and it never... Why don't you do anything about it? I mean, that's his question. Why do I see this? And why, God, does it seem to you not do anything about it? And God's answer that comes back rocks Habakkuk to his core. He comes back and he says, I've already got a plan in motion to deal with it all. You just haven't seen it yet. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something that the world has never seen. I'm going to raise up a people, and I've already begun raising up a people, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, which is a reference to the Babylonians. And I'm going to raise them up, and they're going to sweep across the entire earth. They're going to capture nations. They're going to plunder peoples. They're going to take whatever it is that they want to take, including your nation. And you're going to be taken into captivity. And it's going to be a great woe unto you and your people. And I'm going to intervene and I'm going to deal with this once and for all. Then you get Habakkuk's response to that. And Habakkuk's response is, he's even more blown away and rocked than he was in the beginning of the book. If you thought he was troubled about the sin that he saw in his own land, when he heard how God was going to deal with it, he says, Lord, uh, yeah, okay. It's almost like he said, it's almost like he was afraid that he asked, you know. It's like, Lord, you're giving me way more than I asked for here. You know, I want the sin to be dealt with. But Lord, you're going to allow a nation that's even wickeder than us to come in and to, and to conquer us? Are you really going to utterly wipe us out and utterly destroy us, Lord? And, and he says it with these words where he's just totally blown away. And then he ends that question by saying, I take my place on the wall. I take my place on the rampart, the rampart just watching for God to come back and speak to me incorrectly. Right? And, and correct me. And so God comes back and God speaks to him a second time. And in the second response, God, this is, and this is, this is the part of it that just makes me as your pastor want to say to you that this portion of the Bible is so important and you ought to, if you can, come out and study it with us. But even if you can't, read it. Do read it for yourself and, and even get some commentary. Come talk to me. I make up study sheets for every chapter that are all saved and available to you that will help you, right? But you ought to know what these things say. God comes back and He begins to talk and he, and God has the destruction of Babylon already planned. Even before Babylon had risen up to accomplish God's purposes, God already saw, yeah, I know. 
they're going to come and they're going to conquer and they're going to do everything that I raised them up to do except they're going to completely ignore me and they're going to forget me and they're going to give praise to themselves. They're going to give praise to their weapons. They're going to give praise to their tactics. They're going to give praise to their false gods. It even speaks of them as being like drunkards and wine drinkers in some weird religious hallucinogenic kind of way that they would get into some frame of mind and and, and commune with their false gods. He said, you're, they're even going to give praise to their wine, but they're, not going, but they're not going to praise me. And as a result, that's going to be their downfall. right? And the reason that's so important is Babylon, listen, Babylon is a type or a picture of all Gentile nations in the world. When you read Revelation chapter 17 and 18, It speaks of the destruction of Babylon in the last days. What is is basically the entire world system of religion and commerce and governance and military power and everything else is referred to as Babylon. And and in Revelation 17, you see Babylon the Great is fallen and and you read of... uh, all the nations have drunk the wine of her fornication and everything. Everything that is dialed into this world system in the end is destroyed. So Habakkuk, and what many of the minor prophets do is they create a little synopsis. They create a little snapshot of the judgment that's coming on the entire world. It's not just history. That's the point. It's not just this is the way that God dealt with Israel and this is the way that God dealt with Nineveh and this is the way that God dealt with Babylon. It's screaming out of these pages that are still stuck together in many people's Bibles, screaming out to us, this is what's coming to the world. These prophets were the book of Revelation to people who existed before there was a book of Revelation. Right? I mean, we're, gonna, we're going into Zephaniah. We're going to be in Zechariah sometimes, which speaks of the Messiah coming back and putting his foot on the Mount of Olives and having it split in two. I mean, these are things that are directly relevant and should be on the minds of us all the time. Amen? Chapter 3 in Habakkuk, which we just studied a few days ago, is then just a psalm. He just writes a psalm. He says, Here's, here it is. It's for the singers. Play it on stringed instruments. Just like David's psalm. And it's just a psalm and it's just praise to God because Habakkuk recognizes God's got this. And Habakkuk recognizes that even in the midst of all of the destruction and all the judgment that's coming, God is able to separate off and save and preserve those who are his own elect. From the perspective of Habakkuk, that was the remnant of Israel, the remnant of Judah. With the full knowledge of the gospel and the new covenant, we know that God's elect are of all nations, all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And God is able to save them. Even in Revelation chapter 3, it says that God is able to preserve His church, His elect from the hour of judgment which is going to come. Some people take that to mean pre-tribulational rapture. Some people don't. Whatever the case may be, it's true that God is going to bring great judgment to the world and is going to preserve his own elect through it. We ought to know that and we ought to have those things on our minds all the time. So please, I encourage you, 
don't neglect that portion of your Bibles. Uh, and, and a really big help to you is being offered right by your own church. You come out on Thursday night, you sit here for an hour, and you'll have these things opened up to you. Not that I'm any scholar or teacher or anything like that. Really, I'm just a guy who reads his Bible. That's it. It's really all I am. I'm a guy who reads his Bible and studies it and prays to the Lord for strength to be able to share it with other people. That's it. That's all we do. That's all I've been doing for 17 years, right? There's no importance in me. But this book, this word, we ought to know it together because it shapes our minds, it conforms our lives into what they ought to be before God. So read and study and come and fellowship and participate. Okay? You receive that okay from me? I don't want you to get to, I don't want you to live your whole life as part of this church and then say, why didn't Pastor Lou tell me these books were so important? And I'm, I'm not just doing it to absolve myself of responsibility. I want you to know what it says. I want you to be aware. I want your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ to be full and complete and according to knowledge. Okay? Philippians chapter 4. Now, last week, we concentrated on verses 6 and 7. But I want to just not go over them again, but I want to just reestablish what I've become even more convinced during this past week is the context of these verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. Let me bow together with you before God and pray and ask for his guidance as I speak and as we all listen to his word together, and then I'll explain. Let us pray. Our Father, your word is powerful, your word is true, your word is established, and your word doesn't change and doesn't move and will never pass away. And so here we are with the scriptures open to us, open in front of us, waiting to hear, eagerly waiting to hear from you. My prayer, Lord God, is that even with all the hard things we may have going on in our lives, that none of us would be distracted in this hour, that we, Lord God, would listen expectantly and eagerly, and that you, Lord God, would share with us these things that, as Christians, have been saved by your grace, that we need, Lord God, to know that we might live before you as we ought. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you aware of the fact that the letters of the New Testament, like Philippians, are letters that contain many instructions to Christians. You're aware of that? If you're not, now you are. God saved us. That is entirely His work. That is entirely His grace. We continue to live and exist and walk before Him. That, He sustains us as His children. That is entirely the work of His grace. And if you happen to be listening to this today, and it sounds like the message gives a lot of instructions for Christians for things to do, don't misinterpret that as being, you have to do these things in order to be saved. So what happens is God saves us by His grace, but then the New Testament is filled with instructions for how Christians ought to live because 
God has objectives in this life that he wishes to use us to meet. And what is necessary for us as Christians, sealed and filled with his spirit, is to look at and to listen to his word and to say to it, yes, Lord, and then bend our own will to obey God's word. We are not called to a life of passive trust. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. We are called to a life of active trust. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Active trust, which means I trust the Lord, I believe His Word, and I will endeavor to obey His Word. We don't obey because we're trying to save ourselves, justify ourselves, or keep ourselves saved. We're saved by His grace. We're kept by His grace. We probably all do things all throughout the day that if our deeds alone, even as redeemed people, if our deeds alone were the thing that decided whether or not we were saved, we'd all be lost and we'd all go to hell. Because we're saved and kept by grace. However, please understand that the New Testament is a book of, dear Christian, please do this and please don't do that. Because God wants to use you to glorify Himself in the earth and to reach other people. God wants you to shine. God wants you to love. God wants you to be in good fellowship. God wants you to minister. God wants you to edify and to lift up others who are in Christ. That's what these these sayings in Philippians chapter 4 are so much about. They are of great benefit to us the peace of God which passes all understanding and guards your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. That's of great personal benefit to me and to all who obey what it says and make your requests known to Him with thanksgiving and trust in Him. However, there is a greater purpose than just myself. The greater purpose is that God desires to use His people to reach others in this world. And the testimony of who we are as we relate to one another, as we walk in obedience to His Word, is something that He, in all of His sovereign design, uses. There was a problem, as I'll mention for the third time to you now. There was a problem in the Philippian church. I can't say it was a major problem, because the Philippian church seemed to really have, it seemed to be a really great church. A church that I would love to be part of, you would love to be part of. A church that I would love our church to be like. And yet it had a problem. And the problem in the Philippian church was that, as we've gone over, there were two women who were significantly part of the ministry who were at odds with, they were at odds about something and The Apostle Paul wrote this letter and in chapter 4 told them, settle it. He called upon the church to help them to settle it because that sort of thing can take even the best of churches and ruin them. And so that instruction is given. And the part of this that this recent study of mine through this book that's been very familiar to me for many years, but, but... the part of it that's really like opened my eyes, like just kind of really seeing the perspective of the context of the letter, is a very small word that begins in verse 10, which is the word but. You see but in verse 10. 
and, and it says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. And we'll talk about what the, those statements and the following verses mean starting next week. But what drew my attention was that word, but. What is he in verse 10? Because but in language always indicates that some sort of contrast is being made. So when he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that your care for me has flourished, what is he contrasting their care flourishing for him with? Well, if you kind of piece back through the passage, the thing that he says right before it, you know, uh, whatever things that you've seen, learned and received and heard and saw in me, these things do and the God of peace will be with you. That doesn't really contrast with, but, you know, your care flourishes for me. You know, or even the thing before that, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, think on these things. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be, you know, all that. Uh, let your gentleness be known to all. Rejoice in the Lord always. There are instructions given to church. You go all the way back to the beginning, to verse 2, and he's describing this issue that was going on. And that's what I think he's contrasting. He's saying, he's saying, I'm really kind of bummed out a little bit about the fact that this lingering controversy, this lingering dispute between these two women is going on. So please, true companion, please, church, please help these women who are fellow laborers in the gospel, please help them settle it. Then a list of instructions. Then, but I rejoiced in the Lord that your care for me has flourished. You see? Now, the reason that that literary, textual context is important is because it places in perspective all of the instructions that follow until you get to verse 10. Have you followed that? I hope you have. Because what's basically happening here in these verses is there is a list of things that the Apostle Paul is giving that ought to be going on in the lives of people, in their minds and in their hearts, instead of the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche. Right? And we talked about that a little bit last week. There ought not to be this dominating personality conflict or whatever it was that was going on between these two seasoned, experienced, fruitful ladies Instead, what there ought to be is joy, verse 4. What there ought to be is a good testimony, verse 5. What there ought to be is people at peace with God and not filled with anxiety, verses 6 and 7. What there ought to be are people thinking about the right things, proper things in their minds that the God of peace would be with them, verse 8. What there ought to be going on is people looking at Paul's life and learning from him and watching how he lived and imitating that. Verse 9. You get it? So all of those things, they're a list. And they contextualize Paul's response to the dispute that was going on in verse... that was identified in verse 2. That's what happens when such conflict arises and lingers, and people don't humble themselves, and the conflicts are allowed to just go on and on. What the New Testament refers to as a root of bitterness, a root of bitterness. I like to call it a toehold, because toeholds become footholds. 
footholds become strongholds. And once they become strongholds, they're very difficult to deal with. Toeholds are easier to deal with than footholds. Footholds are easier to deal with than strongholds. And the toehold, the foothold, and the stronghold that arises from the bitterness that swells out of personal disputes and conflict among brethren in the church, that toe print, that footprint is that of Satan. Does anybody else benefit that you can think of? That's why attention to these things is so important. Attention to these things that Paul lays out in this chapter is important for you personally, but it's also important for the fellowship of your church. Maybe that's really the main point. I took verses 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. We went through 6 and 7 last week, but I took those verses together and I kind of gave them a new working sermon title in your bulletin. And I called it Praying, Thinking, and Doing. Because verses 6 and 7 are about praying. And you receive God's peace. Verse 8 is about thinking that the God of peace might be with you. Uh, Verse 8 was about thinking so that your thoughts are right. And then verse 9 is about doing what Paul has exemplified, that the God of peace may be with you. And that's, that's what was missing. The Philippian church was a great church, but one of the things that was missing was peace. And one of the things that was threatened was joy. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with this conflict that needed to be settled. So Paul had to tell them more than once in the letter, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, 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 rejoice. Humble yourself, settle these things that the joy of God would not. You're you're faithful, you give, you minister, you send people to me time and again. You've prayed for me, you're doing well, you love each other, the testimony is great. But all the joy of that in the Lord can be robbed if all of if personal conflict is allowed to go on. Humble yourselves. Let each one of you prefer one another to themselves. Look right at verse 8. I don't need to review verses 6 and 7. Just go right to verse 8. And I have a lot of things that I could say about all of this, but I don't think we'll go to all of it today, but I would like to get to verse 10 next week. So, Verse 8 says... Finally, brethren, and and again, even there, I was wondering, why does he say finally, but then in verse 10 launches off into a completely new discussion? Because I think this is like a list of things that he's bringing to a conclusion. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And you notice, you notice that he lists, he goes through the, I'll read verse 9 in a minute, but he goes through this long list and he very laboriously, as it is in the original languages, he very laboriously uh, uses the words whatever things each time. Like, 
If I were writing that, I might just say, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. But he says, whatever things are this, whatever, and the idea, I don't think the, the meaning of it is different. Either way, it's presented. But the idea, I think, is to very slowly, laboriously, and deliberately go through all of that to make a point. The key to understanding this verse is to understand what word. What, what's the key? What's the command in this verse? What's the verb? What's the verb? Come on, you grammar people. What's the verb? In, it's one sentence. What's the verb? Meditate. That's, that's what we're told to do. And that's the key to understanding the command is meditate. And the idea of meditate is not some weird-sounding, transcendental, you know, experience. The word meditate simply means to think, but it's more than just like think a thought. The idea of meditate is to deliberately dwell on something. Many years, many, many years ago, Pastor MacArthur described this as basically chewing on something in your head. Chew on it like a cow chews on cud. I think that's the way that uh, Pastor MacArthur described it. Just chews and chews. And it's a little gross, you know, because the cow's digestive system, they chew and they swallow and then they regurgitate back into their mouth and they chew and they swallow and then they regurgitate back in their mouth and they chew and they swallow. And that sounds gross, but that's what it means to meditate, to do that in your head. To chew on something in your head again and again and again and again and go over it. And you wonder why I preach the way that I do. By dwelling on a verse and then going back to it and then going back to it and then going back to it. I've got to be careful here because I don't want you to get the impression that I'm regurgitating on you. That would be bad. But, but, but I'm doing it in my own head and then just sharing with you, right? So you think about whatever things are true. Our thoughts, when there is selfish ambition and deceit and pride afoot, which leads to conflict, even among wonderful spiritual people, but conflict that does not get resolved. All sorts of things begin to get said. All sorts of things deviously and manipulatively begin to be done. And then people will either listen to or even imagine in their own minds things that aren't true. And we begin to dwell on lies. In the most extreme case, that's called paranoia. But it doesn't have to always be extreme, and usually it's not. And so what we do is we get in our heads things that aren't true. We start to imagine, we start to try to figure out how do people really feel? What are their motives? And we can cook up in our heads accusations against our brethren that aren't even true. That's what conflict that goes unresolved does. And so Paul says, no, no, no. Whatever things are true, your head grounded in reality. 
you don't know if something's true or not, then dismiss the thought completely and don't dwell on it. You can't control what you can't control. God knows. Do you trust Him? You just sang a beautiful hymn about how you trust Him o'er and o'er. How you've proved Him over and over again. Have you? Well, if you've proved Him over and over again and it's so sweet for you to trust in Him, when these things come to you, dismiss them and move on. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, get your head out of the gutter. Get your head out of the world. We're not not to dwell on the low, base things of this world. We should not be entertained by things that glorify sin. That's the idea of noble. Our thoughts should be out of here and here. Not speaking of class, not speaking of economic status, not speaking of appearance or position or anything like that. In your thoughts... You may be the poorest, most enslaved peasant in the world, but you may have nobility in your mind because you get your thoughts where they belong. Start with God. Start with His Word. Get your mind out of the gutter and get your mind to where it ought to be. Whatever things are just, whatever things are just, dwell on justice. Start with God. God is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ Jesus. And, you know, you can go on. The idea of using these whatever things each time, whatever things are pure. You can understand what these words mean. Pure is very similar to the term holy. Are your thoughts holy? Do you bend your mind? We all struggle. We all struggle with thoughts that will come to us because... We have thoughts from before we were saved. We have thoughts based on things we hear or we see. We have thoughts that are just, it seems like, inextricably tied to the desires of our flesh. And sometimes those thoughts are impure. The Bible speaks of us being able to take every thought captive. Think on things that are pure. Maybe one of the reasons why we struggle with impure thoughts is because we don't deliberately dwell on pure things. We allow what we think about to happen to us rather than what we think about being what we choose to fill our minds with. Do you see that? You're commanded here to think. It's like a little game almost. Like you could say to somebody, don't think about such and such. And the first thing you're going to think about is that. But one of the reasons why it's difficult to do that is because we haven't objectively, deliberately chosen what to think about. Yes, chosen. You are told here to think about these things. Get your mind filled up on things that are pure. And watch it squeeze out. You're still going to, you're always going to battle with impure thoughts. You're always going to fight with it. But if you just leave your mind open to chance, unoccupied, in isolation, just in, in whether it's laziness or boredom, if you just leave your thoughts to chance and just allow your thoughts to wander, hey, Listen, there are lots of people and even Satan himself would be glad to fill it up for you. So fill your mind with things that are pure and watch that become a talisman against thoughts that are impure. 
Go on the offense in your own mind. Whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, we love the salacious. We love bad news. We love controversy. We love to hear about someone else falling into this or falling into that. It's why we love politics so much. Because whatever side of the aisle you're on, you can always find someone just slashing away at somebody else. Right? Constantly. Wham! 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 Right? How about filling your mind with things that are of good report? Good news. Start with the God. Start with the things of the gospel, which is fundamentally great, wonderful news. But fill your mind with things that are good. Good news. Good report. If there's any virtue, anything praiseworthy, right? Anything, anything, any, you hear it? anything. Just for, your, for the sake of your own mind and for the sake of the fellowship of your church, which you are part of. Anything praiseworthy, noble, good, virtuous, anything. Listen, read things that are good and virtuous. And I think to some extent it can even extend beyond just reading the Bible. Reading things that are just intrinsically worthy and good. Fill your mind up with things that are worthy and good. Don't allow your mind to become a cesspool. And that's not just guarding against this, guarding against that. It's deliberately going out and finding things that are good and wholesome and healthy and worthy and filling your mind with that. Do you know that, do you know that this idea of what we put into our minds is, is really what's at the core of the state of mankind's fallenness. I know when I talk about this, I lean on Romans 1 a lot, but I can't help it. These, 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 these thoughts always take me there. And I actually want you to turn there because I refer to it a lot, but I want you to look at it. So keep your finger in Philippians. Let's go. Romans 1. I have so much scribbling and writing in these verses of Romans 1 of my Bible that I, I can't even see the verse numbers. <laughs> I can barely read the words. The funny thing is, is I write all these notes in my Bible and I can't read those either. And, and, and for the most part, I can't even tell why I wrote them. And you start underlining things and when you're done, everything's underlined. So you've actually just made your Bible worse, not better. It's gotten bad because I read the study notes at the bottom where I started underlining and circling things there too. So it's just a big mess. So I'll try to read it. Um, anyway, but if you read Romans chapter 1, and the famous part of Romans chapter 1 that because of modern social issues, everybody knows, is verse 26 and 27. God gave them up to vile passions. Their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due, which is without question a clear reference to homosexuality being a part of man's fallen state. But what happens is people stop reading there 
and they use that just to kind of slam away at homosexuality and everything else. And they fail to read into verse 28, which doesn't single anybody out. It just kind of indicts all of mankind, which says what? And even as they did not like to what? Retain God in their knowledge. Stop there. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are virtuous, whatever things are pure. Listen, man did not choose to think about God. This is what's at the core, at the heart of man's fallen, uh, hopeless, futile state in relation to a holy God. The gospel being the only remedy is that mankind did not want to keep God in their thoughts. Mankind chose not to think about God. Gave God the hand. Is that still a thing? Talk to the hand? Or is that like like 90s and I'm dating myself? But that's what mankind has done to God. Not even in the mind. Not even thinking about Him anymore. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to what? A debased mind. In other words... You don't want it. God says, you don't even want to think about me. Basically, God says what I said to you before. You don't want to fill your mind with the knowledge of me. Go ahead. There are plenty of people and forces out there who will be happy to fill the void. Wake up, everybody. This is a worldwide epidemic. It's the biggest worldwide epidemic in the world (laughs) is people walking apart from the knowledge of God and as a result having their mind filled with all sorts of debased things and I don't just mean they walk around in sexual lust all the time or they walk around thinking violence all the time I think this sort of thinking even leads us to places where personally we battle and struggle we don't regard God highly enough We don't fear God. We don't defer to God according to His Word. We're not interested in His Word. We're not interested in His law. We're not interested in His will. We're not interested in His gospel. We're not interested in the Scriptures. We don't fill our minds. We don't deliberately choose to fill our minds with the thoughts of God. And so there are plenty of other suppliers, cheap, less expensive suppliers out there who are willing to fill it up for you. And it, you know, it's like the junk food of thought is abundant in the world and cheap and free, even. God gave them over to the debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Notice that the things that are not fitting start where? All unrighteousness. That pretty much settles it. Paul could have stopped there, but he went on and gave us one of the a famous Pauline list. There are always lists in Paul's writings. Being filled with all unrighteousness, which pretty much covers everything. But then he lists sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, like gossips, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventor of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, look at this, knowing the righteous judgment of God, fully aware of God's righteous judgment, 
that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They only do it, but they also approve of others who do. They approve of those who practice them. Where does it start? It starts with people in their minds expelling God. It starts in the mind. The corrupt mind is at the core of man's sinfulness and man's resultant separation from God and resultant doom. The gospel is the undoing of that. Oh, i got to praise the Lord from somebody for that. The gospel is the undoing of that futility of the mind. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul interestingly puts it to Timothy like this. And I, have, I have a few very familiar verses to share with you. I'm a very, I'm, I have to, just personally, can I just insert this? I'm, I'm sorry if this is like, I hope this doesn't like annoy you with me, but I'm a pretty simple fellow, actually. Like, I don't, I, 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 like, you know, if a thought comes to me and it's like a Bible verse that I know is very familiar, I just read it anyway. I don't mind reading the same verses over and over again. I don't mind singing the same songs over and over again. I love praying to the same God over and over again. I love thinking about the salvation that's coming to me over and over again. I love thinking about the cross over and over again. Just practicing for eternity. Because, I don't know, are, do we have hobbies even in eternity? Are you going to care about who won the baseball game when, when like you're living in a kingdom that is illuminated by the presence of God and doesn't even need the sun anymore? <laughs> you going to care? Right? So what do we have? We focus on God. And we focus on the Lord and we think about these things. Well, here's one of those familiar verses. So, so 2 Timothy chapter 1. And you know what the context is in 2 Timothy, right? I ask you that question and then I go ahead and explain it anyway, which probably also drives you crazy. But um, the, the context is Timothy's struggling. Timothy's a faithful servant of God, but Timothy is struggling and Paul knows that. And so Paul writes to him, and, and Paul addresses the same thing that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 1, except on the flip side, right? In Romans 1, he emphasized how man did not retain God in his knowledge, and so God gave him up to a debased mind that led to all unrighteousness, all those things. So now, what Paul says to Timothy, who's discouraged, is the opposite. Timothy, this is not the mind that God gave you to be discouraged like this. Timothy, your thinking's wrong. Timothy, you're not dwelling on what's true. You're not dwelling on what's praiseworthy. You're not dwelling on what's noble. You're not dwelling on what's virtuous. You're worried, Timothy. You're worried because I'm in prison and everyone's left me alone and I'm going to die. Timothy, in the beginning, I told you that that sort of thing was probably going to happen. You saw me get stoned. You saw me get beat up. You saw me get excluded, everything else. You know this is part of it. So, in, so he starts off Second Timothy and says in verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you. Wonderful, right? Being mindful of your tears. That's the first clue that Timothy's in a rough place. Because Timothy has tears. And, and, and Paul's not 
insulting that. Paul's not denigrating that. Paul's writing the letter to address it with truth, to confront it with truth. Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance. There's the mind. I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you. Here you go. That's also the mind. All these words have to do with the mind. Remembrance. Remembering the faith of his mother and his grandmother. Remembering that I know that faith is also in you. I want to remind you. In other words, Timothy, I want to get this back into your mind again. I want you to remind you what? To stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What is that gift? It's the gift to preach. It's the gift to share God's word. It's the gift to stand there in front of that church and preach and preach and preach and preach and fill those people's minds with the truth of God. Don't sit there in your tears and don't sit there and worry about me and don't sit there and pity yourself. You stir, Timothy, you stir up that gift again. And you get that. And it started with his mind. He needed to be told that. And then in, in verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of what? Power? We get that. Love? We get that. And a sound mind. Wow. So we're familiar with the Holy Spirit being the source of power in the life of a Christian. We're familiar with the Holy Spirit shedding His love abroad in our hearts. The love of God. We're familiar with the Holy Spirit leading us to love one another that we might show the world that we are the disciples of Jesus. But one of the other aspects of the work of the Holy Spirit is this sound mind. A sound mind is a stable mind. A mind that is in the right place because it is consumed with the right things. And so Paul says, I want to remind you about your gift. I want to remind you that I was right there and laid my hands on you when you were set apart for your purpose, your ministry. You have this gift to preach and teach and you need to, you need to stop worrying about me. And he goes on, you know, he goes on to say in verse 8, therefore don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Another indication as to what was going on. Paul, Timothy was tearful. Timothy was fearful. Timothy was, I think Timothy was probably a little bit struggling with doubts. Did I really get involved in the right thing here? Timothy's feeling a little like, man, Paul's back in prison again. I mean, did I really hitch my wagon to the right train here? And Paul is like, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. That's the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the gospel and don't be ashamed of me as prisoner. Instead, here comes the mind. Here comes the mind being straightened out. Here comes the mind being straightened out. But what? Share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, don't sit there and cry about this. Join in. This is what we're called to. This isn't a sign that you hitched your wagon to the wrong train. This is a sign that you hitched your wagon to the right train. Right? He's not judging him. He's straightening out his thoughts. Whatever things are true. Whatever things are noble, just, lovely, pure, of good report, praiseworthy, virtuous. That's out of order, but you get the idea. Timothy, straighten your thinking out here. 
So Romans shows us that man's state at the core is God is out of their thoughts. Second Timothy shows us a struggling Christian who needs to be told, get the right thinking about God back into your thoughts. And this is what the Philippian church is being told. There's a conflict. There's a conflict among a couple of significant women and it's, it's, it's affecting how people think. Get your mind out of, well, I'm, we're going to do this my way. Get your mind out of that and get your mind back where it belongs. True, pure, lovely, noble, praiseworthy, of good report. Choose to fill your mind with those things. And oh, by the way, uh, just one other thing that's really important. I got a whole bunch of Bible references here that I want to read to you, and I'm not going to read any of them because I don't have time. But I just want to say this. What? If, if Christians are supposed to think about the right things, we're commanded to meditate on the right things that we would be in the right frame of mind concerning God. Implicitly, what, the, what does that demand of every Christian in their relationship towards one another? Doesn't it, doesn't it demand, listen carefully, everyone look at me. Does that not demand that you and I be very careful about what sorts of information we feed to each other? You be careful about what you say. You be careful about what you post, can I say, in the modern context. You be careful about what direction you send other believers to look at this or think about this or listen to this. You have an effect on what each other So, love, love enters the picture. Love kicks the door down. Love bursts in and says, guys, love each other. Watch what you say. Watch what you spread. Watch what you share. You're affecting the thoughts of other Christians Remember that the Lord said, you cause one of my little ones to stumble. You're better off with a millstone. Cast her on your head and throw her into the sea. Brethren, brethren, I plead with you. Remember, give thought to what you say and what you spread among yourselves. Give thought to what you talk about. Give thought to what you share. Stop, step back, take a breath. Count to three, count to ten. Go sit in the corner for a minute. Before you open your mouth, sit and think, what effect? are my words going to have on the mindset of that person that I'm talking to? Are they filled with anxiety? Are they filled with conflict? Are they filled with struggle? Are they filled with... Am I feeding that? Am I fanning the flames? Our own spiritual health as individuals and our church health is dependent upon each one of us thinking of that which is pure and lovely and holy and true and noble and praiseworthy etc. And so I keep putting them in different order every time I go through them. I'm sorry. But, 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 but it's, it's dependent upon that. Please be careful, brothers and sisters, about what you stir up amongst each other. What does Hebrews chapter 6 tell us to do? 
what does Hebrews chapter 6 tell us to stir up among one another? No, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us to stir up what? Love and good works. That's right. That passage about, that passage that preachers always use to shame people into coming to church three, four, five, six, seven times a week, you know, uh, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The, the, the context of that, and I don't do that, right? I don't. But, the, but, that, but that passage of Scripture, the point of that isn't just to get people to come to church. The point of that is to get people to come together so that they use their time together to stir up love and good works. Stir it up. Paul writes to Titus and he tells them that we should be abounding in good works. But in Philippi, Euodia and Syntyche had a conflict that had spread. And so Paul had to tell them, rejoice. Watch your testimony. Here's how you deal with anxiety. Don't, you don't deal with anxiety by just like gossiping among yourselves and trying to fight and manipulate your situation. You deal with anxiety by going to God and making your requests known to Him with thanksgiving. And He spiritually will give you peace in here. You fight and defraud and gossip and backbite and slander and everything you do to try to manipulate to make yourself peace out here. God says, come to me in prayer with thanksgiving and I'll give you peace in here. And think, meditate. Meditate on the true, the lovely, the pure, the noble. Get your mind there. Get your mind there. We need to be this. We need to be this. You guys must think there's really something wrong with me that, 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 that I can stand here for an hour and talk about one sentence. And it's, it's not, listen, it's not anything to be impressed with, all right? It's not a skill because there are preachers who could stand here and talk for five minutes and say more than I do. I know that. Right. But but I I just I I just it's just in me to just really like make sure we get this. And I don't want us just to know it. I want us to be doers of it. Not just hearers. Hear all this stuff and say amen and then leave and go out and start dwelling on and stirring up all sorts of trouble again. Filling other people's minds and our own minds with things where we're meditating on all the wrong stuff. Don't say amen and then go and do that. A city on a hill, Jesus said. We're supposed to, our light is supposed, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. Right? Nobody lights a lamp. And like, you know, modern context. Nobody takes their cell phone out in the dark and turns on the light so they can see and goes like this. Right? You understand what I'm doing, right? I didn't just like totally butcher that because I don't really know how that works. But somewhere in here there's a flashlight and you can turn it on and you can shine it in the dark. But you don't shine it and then do this. Right? You put the light on so, so it can be seen. City on a hill, it can't be hidden. That's what we're supposed to be. But we need to nurture and love and uplift and forgive and pray for one another. Help each other. 
help. You have an influence. You're part of a body. The hand can't say to the foot, get out of here. We don't need you. Part of a body. And every joint, every ligament, every bone, every part of the body supplies something. And we ought to strengthen each other. Speak and minister and point and direct. Get people's attention in the direction of things that are good, noble, holy, pure, and all this stuff. Verse 9. The last thing in this list. Most Bibles list this verse 9 in the same paragraph as verse 8 as the New King James does. And I think the reason for that is that the thought and the action are inextricable from one another. Inseparable from one another. If you think on what's right, you'll do what's right. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw of me, these things do, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, you know that meditate was the important word in verse 8. That's the verb that you were commanded, right? What is that word in verse 9? Very short little word. Begins with D and ends with O. Do. That's the command. Do. He says all this stuff. Look, the things that you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Do it. Right? In the same letter, uh, you don't have to turn there for time's sake, but in the same letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, in talking about the world, he said men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Paul loved, Paul loved these lists, man. I mean, he didn't hold back. Just all these lists. The blasphemers, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong. It goes on. Haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people. Turn away! But then when he gets to verse 10, he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith. Timothy, Timothy, you fought. The world's going to be one thing, but you need to follow the example I've set. Carefully follow my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions and afflictions, Timothy, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. The Lord delivered me out of all of it. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians here. Not that Paul's making any great thing about himself. He's not trying to blow himself up or build himself up, but he's trying to point out that the, the idea of following the godly example is an important one in Christianity. One of the most imposing things about being in leadership in a church is that Peter wrote to elders and said, be examples to the flock. Shepherd the flock of God and be examples to them. And that's true in so many facets of life. It's certainly true for pastors, deacons. It's certainly true for just any one of you know, the Euodias and the Sintiches, people that are just significantly involved in ministry. Your conduct ought to be something that 
less mature believers can look at and say, that's how I want to be. And you can learn from those people's mistakes, too, because it's not about emulating. You know, Paul, Paul said, Paul, the, the apostle Paul said, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things that I don't want to do. So, I mean, Paul's not a perfect guy. You know, referred to himself as the chief of sinners, right? Paul was a guy who had murder in his background, okay? So, Paul, though, here says, Timothy, remember all these things that I went through. Remember my doctrine, what I taught. Remember my manner of life. Remember how I lived. Don't be like the world. Be like me. And that's what he says to the Philippians here. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these what? Do. 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 Christianity is doing. Becoming a Christian, remaining a Christian has nothing to do with us doing anything. That's all God's doing. But your life day by day as a Christian is doing. It's not just a passive existence that happens to you. The teachings of the New Testament are not written fatalistically. If God wills this, God will make it happen. No. The things you saw in me and learned from me, do them. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. James says, as we quote all the time. Right? And what's interesting, the thing that jumped out is the last phrase. And the God of peace will be with you. You want to have peace with God? Hey, Cain. Cain, do what's right and everything will be okay. It's as old as the book of Genesis. Cain brings wrong offering. Abel brings the right offering. And Cain is furious that God doesn't accept his offering. And God says to Cain, do what's right and you'll be all right with me. You want to have peace with God? You want to have peace in your mind? You want to be not offended all the time? You want to be secure in your spirit, in your mind? Do what's right. He says here, the things that you received and learned and saw and heard in me, do them and the God of peace will be with you. That phrase, God of peace, caught my attention. It appears only like five times, I think it is, in the New Testament. And it only appears twice with like meaning that's beyond just like a doxology. Like Paul says, saying, now may the God of peace be with you. And, and you know, I'm not dismissing that. But, but here... He's actually described as the God of peace in conjunction with some action on your part. You know, do what you've been taught and the God of peace will be with you. He uses it, again, just listen, just time's sake, I want to wait for you to turn there. But you can later, you can look at the very end of the book of Romans yourself. And, and he says this. He says, and again, what's going on in the Philippian church? There's a conflict that's not being resolved, Right? Well, in Romans, it had, in the Roman church, it had gotten really bad, a lot worse, apparently, than Philippians, because he warns them and says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all. 
Therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. And the God of peace, ready? Anyone know what it says next? Yeah. The God, the God of peace will crush Satan shortly. Because at the heart of all such division is Satan. The fingerprints that are all over such divisiveness among believers belong to the devil. And Paul says what? The God of peace will crush Satan shortly. Be patient. Hang in there. Get your head where it belongs. Think and meditate and dwell on the right things. Remain steadfast. Stir up the gift that is in you. Keep serving the Lord. Keep helping one another. Get your mind on things that are pure, noble, holy, just, praiseworthy, etc. Remember the lessons that you've learned and seen in me and do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And that God of peace will crush Satan shortly. Help each other and hang in there. Then, then he comes to verse 10 and says, but, and so that's when he changes out of this discussion of the Euodia Sintici controversy in the Philippian church and all of the things that Paul needed to say to them because of it. Rejoice in the Lord. Watch your testimony. Turn anxiety into supernatural peace by taking it to God with thanksgiving in your heart. Think. Choose to think on the things that are right and watch how you influence your brethren and don't influence them away from doing that. And take the lessons you've learned and do them. That's the path to the right existence in this life with God. It's not works. It's not trying to justify yourself. All of that precedes this. This is not a message of the gospel of salvation. This is a message to the Christian who's been saved by God's grace. Here's how we ought to live and love and serve. Jed and Amy, can you guys come back up here? And they're going to lead us in our last hymn. Let's all stand up together, everybody.